Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb and I'm here to share some of the most epic conversations I get to have with some of the most fascinating people on our planet. Every episode is dedicated to elevating the conversation around mental health because it ain't weak to speak. I'm a massive believer that a conversation could change and save a life for the better. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. It's so good to be back here with you. Thank you very much for investing your time listening to me and listening to our guests that we get on this podcast lineup. It's very important because I don't ever want to take your time for granted because I don't take my time for granted. I value it very much, especially this day and age when we're all extremely busy. So wherever you are right now, Buckle in. We've got a great episode lined up for yourself. I'm bringing onto the podcast actually an old friend I went to high school with. Her name is Natasha Briffer. She resides on the Gold Coast of Australia. Not sure at the time, about 15 years ago, she knew she wanted to be a psychologist, but she's actually an Australian registered psychologist. She's worked across the public mental health sector, non-government organization or the NGO sector, and she currently works in private practice on the Gold Coast. And she works particularly with adolescents and adults. And she's been doing this now since around 2013. So she's got quite a lot of experience up her sleeve. She has an area of expertise and an area which we will be talking about on this podcast, borderline personality disorder or BPD. Now, Natasha has been providing evidence-based intervention to people living with BPD for quite a while now. And she's trained in dialectical behavior therapy or DBT therapy. So she's got a wealth of knowledge, but what I really want to talk to her about today is, and I hear this all too common, you know, in the mental health field is, you know, not only the public health system and how people arrive at an emergency department who might be struggling or showing up with signs of suicidal ideation and things like that, or self-harm, and where are the gaps in the system and why are people still falling through those gaps, how you can look after someone in an emergency setting, being an everyday lay person, how you can triage someone to get the professional help that they need correctly and basically what are some of the signs and symptoms you might be able to look out for within yourself or someone else in your life that might be struggling with mental health issues around borderline personality disorder depression or anxiety and you know there's over 350 odd diagnosable mental health challenges but we're not going to go into all of them that's not what this is about i'm not a mental health professional and i'll make that clear But today, I really want to talk about the ins and outs of BPD, how Natasha navigates through this system, what are the clinical risks, or what do we class people as too high risk? What does that classify? How does that kind of work in this system? How do we treat people with mood disorders? What's it like kind of going to a private practice if you've never been and 
sought professional health before, what it really is like, like versus what you think it's like to actually what it really is like and how that if you're not finding the right fit, it's okay and therapists are fully okay with that. So you're not letting them down and be honest with them and how you can have that conversation with your doctor if you're not gelling and hopefully they'll help you find the next person that might be the right fit for you. But that being said, obviously this is It Ain't Week to Speak. Everything that we talk about is around health and wellness and how we can speak up and reach out for help, not only if we're struggling, but if we're thriving in life. How can we be better? How can we push ourselves past the boundaries? How can we step outside our comfort zones? Life is not about just getting by. It is about living. So I want to talk about all of that. So without further ado, let's just get Natasha onto the podcast and let's get straight to it. Well, welcome onto the podcast, Natasha. You've been up to so much since, you know, I saw you last at high school and we've both been doing a lot of different work, but kind of in the same field. I'm very interested to have you on here today. Welcome. I hope it seems like you've been crushing life. Talk to me. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, look, there has been a little bit that's unfolded since you would have seen me last. I guess to give you a little bit of backstory on me and my clinical kind of journey and training since, yeah, all those years ago. So, yeah, I went to uni and did in Australia, because I appreciate some of your audience will be around the world. So in Australia, to become a psychologist, you go to uni, you do your undergraduate in psychology, you do your honours year, you do postgrad study. And then six years later, minimum, you're able to kind of go into the world as a newbie psychologist. So I did that journey. Once I become registered, I went, I was lucky enough actually to get a role within the public mental health space in Australia in outpatient setting, which means we see people in the community who typically are referred from the local psychiatric inpatient unit. We also see clients who are deemed kind of too high risk for the private sector. So it is the pointy end of mental health. It really is the service where people go when they don't really have anywhere else to go. And so you're seeing clients who are presenting with a lot of risk issues. You know, they're often experiencing thoughts. And I guess just activation warning here, because I'm going to probably be talking about things like suicide and self-harm, given the topic. So yeah, a lot of the clients that we worked with did have challenges with suicide, thoughts, actions, and, you know, behaviors to cope with things such as self-harm and drinking and drug use. So yes, and as part of that work, when I first got a job with Queensland Health, I was working in a mood specialist service. So primarily working with people who had mood disorders. So things like depression, bipolar, anxiety-related disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, and personality disorders. So I, yeah, had my first exposure to people living with borderline personality disorder in my public work. And throughout the kind of nearly 10 years that I did with that service, I found myself doing more and more of the work and really loved it, really loved the clients, really found that the ways that work well to support people with personality disorders just gelled with my personality as who I am. So that tended to work well. And yeah, did that for a long time. The last part of my career with the public service was actually training clinicians, both in the public sector, so colleagues of mine at Queensland Health, but also non-government sector workers as well, so helping them to work better, 
with clients living with BPD. So how can I upskill and have other people feeling more confident and confident in that? So that sort of took us to the end of last year and then started private practice at the beginning of this year. So yeah, been doing that and still been doing a lot of the same work, just in a different setting. Wow. Well, there is a lot of information there to unpack and I appreciate the work that you're doing. This is very important. This conversation is very important, but seeking help in a, I guess, mm-hmm. a myriad of different ways, combinations with help and what that looks like for different people is different for a lot of people and for us, me included. Yeah. And, you know, I like to share my story quite regularly and my experiences with anxiety and whatnot. But I mean, just rewind there for a moment. You said you worked in kind of like when you deemed patients too high a risk for private institution or practice, so to speak. When someone... I guess, delivers themselves to an emergency setting. Is that what you're talking about at a hospital or an emergency room? Yeah. Okay. Typically, so it can be like the, lo- the local emergency department. It can be through any of the phone channels. So it might be on a call to Lifeline. It might be on a call with Suicide Callback or any of those little niche organizations that support people in crisis. They then can refer as well to organizations like Community Mental Health. But yeah, it's typically ED somebody's you know police and ambulance get called when somebody's in crisis those sorts of channels so where does the line get drawn because i've been in this space i'm a student of life and i live through a shared lived experience i'm not a mental health professional i make that very clear in all the conversations that i have even on this podcast i hear of stories all the time and being a devil's advocate i always like to challenge these questions and the things that people do in the space when someone arrives at a, an emergency department and basically asks for help, I'm suicidal. Yeah. They're showing signs of whether it's suicidal ideation, self-harm, drug abuse, all these warning signs that may put someone in the crisis area that needs support. But too often, you know, I hear in this situation and this work, I'm sure you do all the time, and there's only so much you can do, obviously, but people yeah. go to these front lines and then they get rejected or they have a very bad experience and then they are told to leave or they do end up leaving and maybe for the most part people leave and they end up getting the support elsewhere that they need to get back on track and to live mentally well over you know a period of time that takes however there are some people that leave those settings after being told that they can't be here or they don't belong here and they go on to take their own life so when we talk about the risks of people showing up to EDs, how do you classify that and where are the gaps in this field? I know this is a loaded question, so I respect and appreciate yeah. your response as well. Yeah. So, look, Sam, I'll do my best and I don't think there's a perfect answer and I do unfortunately think that emergency departments and, of course, I'm speaking to Australia, so I know in the States they have different systems, but I think in Australia, by and large, it's overworked and under-resourced system. I think the intent is good and I think sometimes it falls short. As a person working in the industry but also a friend to people, you know, who suffer from mental health, I've seen, yeah, I've advocated for my own clients to be seen at ED and had them rejected. I've seen friends do the same. So I think definitely there are times where people ask for the help in places like emergency departments and might not always get it. And I think some of the work that's being done, at least in the public space, is to try and create more. We call them the technical world is 
at word is emergency department diversion. So how can we have other places for people who are in distress that they can actually get the care that they need without having to sit in an emergency department for 10 hours and then possibly told we have no beds, you know, and then they don't get the support anyway. So I think they're trying to increase what does that journey pathway look like if you do present. And, you know, coming back to the topic for today, which is people with living with borderline personality disorder, those environments are actually counter-therapeutic. I do whatever I can working with somebody with BPD to have the ED or an inpatient unit the last place that they go because it's actually the most unhelpful. So I think that's this paradox too that we find in mental health that, yes, there are these environments, last resorts, if you like, for people to go when there's nowhere else to go. And at the same time, those places can actually start to, there's a tipping point between how helpful are they versus how unhelpful are they. And when we're talking about people living with BPD, short crisis admission, so I'm talking no more than 72 hours is the only time frame in which that's helpful. Any time after that for people living with BPD, it'll actually start to become counter-therapeutic. So coming back, I guess, to your question, I guess it's not a perfect system. And I definitely think having worked, particularly in the public setting for many, many years, there are challenges. I think that the people who work in emergency departments have the best of intentions. I've sat in meetings, you know, with the people who manage these settings and they do really try to be more trauma-informed, to be more person-centred, yet you're working within a system that has so many factors that can get in the way of being trauma-informed, person-centred. So these, you know, key performance indicators or KPIs that hospitals put in front of frontline staff that they're always trying to balance when they're sitting with a client, which does make it really difficult to do the work. I think for me, I'm really passionate about you know, encouraging and upskilling people's more immediate support. So working with partners, working with parents, working with friends, educating community. Because I think if we all do a better job at the community level, including people like GPs and private practitioners, if we could avoid people having to get to EDs, I think that's the best option. But that's a big piece of work, I think, orchestrated across several different people and several different organizations. And I guess, you know, Livin does an awesome job at that. You're one piece of the puzzle to this. And I think more of that happening locally is kind of the best way forwards. Yeah, no, very well said. And again, I value and appreciate that. It's kind of like, it's such a big system and it can get very complex. And I think from a lay person on the outside, it might look like, why is it so hard just to get support? But there are a lot of things involved. And I'm hearing that from what you're saying. And yeah. I've been like, I've kind of navigated that system through a number of different ways of putting friends through the system and all that sort of stuff. So I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly and all the stuff in between. And I get it. I get it. But it's kind of like how far is someone willing to go to actually be forced to stay there and get the support that they need? It's kind of like almost some places in the past, if we're talking about mental health and suicide, for example, it's kind of like... Mm. It's easy to see something than not something that you can't see. So if someone was to present themselves and they, they actually were physically harmed because they did it themselves and you could see it and they were like distressed that way and you could physically see the trauma as opposed to someone coming in and going, if you don't take me in and help me or something, I'm going to take my life. Like, does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it's one of those things. I think we've done so much work in 
the suicide prevention space, I think that the stigma is definitely less, even if I reflect over my career, albeit, you know, the last, say, decade. I definitely think we're moving in the right direction and I still think there is stigma and I still think that people are scared of what to say and what to do. And you have to understand that when a person presents to an emergency department, say they're suicidal, not always will the first point of contact be a mental health worker. It typically will be a what we like a, an ED proper, so like an ED physical health nurse who's probably not had any training in mental health. They've got to do the triaging. And, you know, when I was working with Queensland Health, part of my role as the workforce development officer with personality disorder clients was to help the different cogs in the system be more person-centred, be more trauma-informed. So it didn't matter if you were a mental health clinician a physical health staff member, a janitor for that matter. If you were coming into contact with people, I'm such a big advocate of any moment can be therapeutic, irrespective of your background, irrespective of your relationship with the person, just treating the person like a person. I think that's the biggest thing, you know, and moving away from this idea of what's wrong with you and moving to what's happened to you. There's these small little shifts that we can make in how we approach the work that we do to make such a big difference. Yeah, it's, yeah, amen to that. That's very yeah, amazingly said. And I couldn't agree more with you, Tash. I really couldn't. And you've done some amazing work. And we talk, and you've mentioned it a few times now, you're probably more centered or focused around BPD. Can you talk to the people who are listening that might not know what borderline personality disorder is? Like as simple form term as you can, what does that mean? Yeah, so look, I think at the core, we really conceptualize or think about borderline personality disorder as a disorder of emotion dysregulation, which means people come into the world with more difficult to manage emotion systems, right? So say you and I, Sam, everybody really, we're all on a continuum. So when we come into the world, we can have some more or less, but there's certain vulnerabilities to do with how we manage, interact and respond to emotional stuff is what I call it. It's very, very technical. But if you're faced with stimuli, I guess, things, events, memories, you know, situations in the environment, we could put everyone in the world on a sensitivity scale and say we were sitting in a lecture theatre and someone slammed the door. About a third of people wouldn't notice. A third would notice but wouldn't be bothered. And if you were like me, I would notice and I would be bothered. It would startle me. So we're all on an emotional sensitivity scale, right? People who have borderline personality disorder typically come into the world more at that sensitive end of that continuum. So that's the first thing. So this is me explaining, I guess, how people come into the world with more difficult to manage motion regulation systems. The second bit to this is that not only can we come into the world with varying degrees of sensitivity, but we can also come into the world having a biological vulnerability to having bigger responses to when we're faced with emotional situations, you know, thoughts, feelings, anything that might evoke an emotional response, which means for some people, they might go from zero to 100 in like a second. And that's not a conscious effort that I'm just going to blow up over this. This is my biology within me inbuilt when I come into the world I'm going to have a bigger response so you can imagine if you're sensitive that's going to make life tricky if you're sensitive and you have bigger responses this is 
exponentially making life more difficult to manage, right? And then the third thing that we can come into the world more vulnerable to is once we have that emotional cue, we then have the emotional response, then it can take us a lot longer to return to baseline. So I've worked with clients who it's taken them days. They're just as angry about the thing that happened two days ago in the present moment. And this is not a choice. They're not hanging on to the anger because it feels good. It just takes them longer. Now, you can imagine life doesn't stop for things to settle down. Like stuff keeps happening, you know. There'll be, yeah, like we have an argument with someone or someone cuts us off on the road or we get an appointment cancelled. And so if you've got a slow return to baseline, which is what we call it, but shit keeps on happening, you never get to baseline. So you're this emotional kind of mess a lot of the time. So then you think about it, more sensitive, bigger responses, slow return to baseline. That's a pretty tricky to manage emotion system. So that's the first thing. The fourth element to this is we can come into the world with more difficulties with our impulse control system, not just our emotion regulation. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So not only is managing emotions difficult, but so is managing behavior. So being able to resist urges to act, to do something, to say something. We're all on a continuum, too, of how well we can inhibit those responses. And typically what we see in people that go on to develop borderline personality disorder, they have a combination, but typically quite a few of those emotion system vulnerabilities 
and the vulnerability to making controlling behavior hard. That was a pretty tough gig (laughs) to then try and navigate the world through, you know? And I think, yeah, we need to hold that in mind. I think when we're talking about borderline personality disorder, but that's what makes it more difficult for these people to manage life. So at the core, it's that. Now, that piece is not just on its own. So it's not just about having these vulnerabilities. And might I say too, before we move on, that having some of those traits is actually really positive. This is all. This is not all negative and nor should it be perceived that way. Like as a mental health practitioner and you yourself, Sam, being very compassionate towards others and empathetic, you would have to have some of those vulnerabilities because yeah, without definitely. a sensitivity, you can't tune into other people, right? So there's some positives to that having some of that. It's how you manage it though, right? And the other thing too is people come into the world and we have these sensitivities, but in order to then go on to develop borderline personality disorder, the environment also has a part to play. So typically what happens is you have this biological vulnerability and it's met with what we formally call an invalidating environment. Now, a validating environment is people around you, your family, your friends, school, work, whatever the environment, and it gives you messages like, hey, like I get you. Gosh, it must be hard for you going through what you're going through. Let me help you. What can I do? You know, I get it. You have a difficult to manage emotion system. How can we, you know, help you to deal with this better? That's validation. An invalidating environment communicates to the person that, You need to stop doing what you're doing, what you're doing is wrong. And why you're having these problems, it's because something inherently wrong with you. You have a character flaw, you know, so it's very much doesn't understand the person. But also too, I guess it sometimes will send messages to the person such as, oh, you'll be right, just be positive. Mm, Or you'll be okay. Once you get there, you'll feel better. So it's this oversimplifying problems because if somebody could do that, they would do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also, too, it's invalidation can be sort of this expectation. I demand for you to be better, but without the coaching, without the support. Of course, any sort of trauma such as like abuse and neglect and things like that, invalidation. And so when we talk about coming into the world with these vulnerabilities, then if you're interacting with this invalidating environment, it's the transaction between these two things. So you come into the world and you start to influence the environment. The environment doesn't have the resources. It doesn't understand. It can't give you what you need. So it influences you. You become and so on and so forth. So it's this transaction between the bio and the social, which generally is at play for someone then to go on to develop BPD. So you can come into the world with these biological vulnerabilities, these things that make emotions difficult. You can have, though, a really validating environment. You can have people that get you. You can have people that coach you and you won't go on to develop BPD. Similarly, you might have some invalidation going on, but you don't have these biological vulnerabilities, probably won't go on to develop BPD. So it's that perfect storm of the two. And what I'm describing here is something called the biosocial theory. Dr. Marsha Linehan, who is a big player in this space, she's one of the most affluent researchers and the developer of dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, which is one of the evidence-based treatments for people living with BPD. So she developed this biosocial model to explain, I guess, in her research, why these people were developing 
this difficulty in their personality structure. And I guess what's really nice is she did all of this in the 1980s and now a lot of it's been proven in neuroscience, fMRIs and that sort of thing to support that this theory is, you know, a good explanation of why people come into the world this way. So that's a little bit about, I guess, at the core. The other thing, sorry, I'll also just mention that I think people can relate to is it's a disorder too that people often describe as, you know, when somebody's had physical burns, they're very sensitive to touch where the burn's been. Well, for people with borderline personality disorder, it's like being born with no emotional skin. So if you can imagine the intensity of that and how that feels, you know, that's how tough emotions can be for some of these people. Yes. Thanks for sharing that in such a yeah, very in depth, but ways that we could definitely understand it and put, you know, put it back in the real world. So with that being said, borderline personality disorder, how, so you're now working in private practice. Give me the link between the work that you do and obviously without naming people, because it's not what we're doing, but you've got a patient that's come in to see you. Do you have any sort of, like, obviously it's not a one size fits all approach. I realize that, but do you have like an area that you tend to like focus on like CBT, DBT, what kind of area do you feel is having such a great success with your patients and has been over the years? Yeah, look, I think I always sort of say the first more overarching way that I work with clients is a trauma-informed way and a person-centered way. So what does that mean? That means, number one, do no harm. So don't be doing anything or asking questions or, you know, practicing in a way that's actually going to activate the person. And sometimes that just means, you know, allowing time for the relationship to build first and earning the right to hear somebody's story. I'm kind of a big believer of. A lot of people who I used to see in public would sort of mention to me that they'd go into a session with, you know, different sorts of practitioners and they got so overwhelmed because they would ask to share all of the good, bad, the ugly in the first session. And for me, it's kind of like, well, that's, you're asking somebody to do that and you're a stranger to them. So I think the first bit is building the relationship, having that trust there and understanding somebody's story in time. Create, so I guess that's like the a trauma. Safe environment, hey? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other piece to my work is treating the person like a person, not like a patient. So yes, I might know more about mental health and the different therapies, but the person knows more about themselves. And to me, I work with clients in a coaching sort of role. So like you would, you know, yell out, sort of do this, do that on the side of the soccer field or the tennis court or whatever it might be. It's a similar sort of thing in therapy. So you're coming together in your team. So they're my kind of general ways of working with clients. And then for people living with BPD, I do draw a lot on DBT, so dialectical behavior therapy. It's one of the most researched and one of the most evidence-based approaches to working with people with BPD, particularly if suicidal actions, so attempts on one's life and self-harm behavior are quite prominent in the person's presentation. Similarly, if they're finding themselves in the emergency departments or in crisis services a lot, DBT is really good, really effective for those presentations. I think the other thing to, to mention, which I haven't done yet, is just to paint you a little bit of a picture of the different features of BPD. I think people can get confused about what it actually is. And I think we can talk about it in the different challenge areas, right? 
So the first area is that people with with BPD, as I mentioned, they have difficulties with emotion. So they often have very, like their, their mood changes quickly and frequently. So they have this instability with their mood and they can have challenges with anger. So often having a bigger response to anger than somebody who doesn't have their personality structure. So I guess emotion dysregulation is the first area. The second is they have difficulties in their thinking, particularly when they're under high stress. So they can, under high stress, experience a little bit of paranoia. And some people, when they're really, really stressed, they can even experience some psychotic symptoms. And it's not a psychotic illness. It's not schizophrenia. It's just that they're responding to extreme stress in this way. And the other component that can come into play for people when they're under a lot of stress living with BPD is something called dissociation. It's our kind of mind's way of absenting itself or, you know, taking itself out of the situation. 100%. Yep. Also, so I guess we've got emotion challenges. We have thinking challenges. Challenges with self is another component of BPD. So having difficulties in understanding who am I? Like, where do I fit in? What are my values? What do I want out of life? how do I develop goals and then how do I stick with them? And people with BPD have this chronic, so long-term emptiness feeling that they kind of carry around. And it often is tied to that self dysregulation. The other big element that people have difficulty with if they have BPD is their relationships. So often people with BPD will really struggle to be able to see you know, the not so great and the great things about somebody at the same time. So they will get really stuck in either really, really, really liking someone and then really, really not liking someone and not being able to see the other side in the moment. So they kind of white kind of thing. It is. It's it's, I love you. I love you or I hate you. That's how it feels for them. Yep. And also to really sensitive to rejection and very sensitive and reactive to feeling someone's abandoned them, left them. And yeah, that's a big core issue for people with BPD. And then the last one is I kind of touched to before, but having difficulty controlling behaviour and often to do with suicide, suicide thoughts, impulsivity, self-harm. So a pretty tough gig. Yeah, I think. very, very, yeah, very. And it's to a, try and navigate that. Yeah. And it's, you know, fundamentally, it's definitely something that, you know, if someone is experiencing, should seek psychological support in some level if they can and if they have the means or if they're at a place in their life where they're willing to go and seek that professional help. Because you and I both, we can be advocates for seeking mental health support, which I am, I do it myself. But it's very hard for some people to tell them to go and seek psychological support because they don't know what it looks like. How do I access it? Where do I sit? Is it weird when I'm in the waiting room? All this, there's just so many misconceptions around this. A question about BPD, right? Now, is it a lot of the time, I don't have the answers to this, maybe you do, but are there other mental health challenges at play underlying with BPD, like anxiety, like OCD, like depression, bipolar, or is it generally one on its own? No, look, I think it definitely co-occurs is what we call it. So BPD often co-occurs with other mental health challenges. So it often co-occurs with major depression. So somebody can have very distinctive depressive episodes in addition to that underlying, I guess also just to probably clarify, so a personality disorder is typically enduring. 
you know. So it's a long-term thing that we have to deal with. And rather than, you know, we can definitely have remission of the symptoms associated with BPD, but there will be the vulnerabilities. And so it's about learning how to compensate and how to cope with those vulnerabilities and reducing our risk of those vulnerabilities being activated. Managing it in a healthy way. Yes. Continuing to access the supports and the things that worked for you that made you feel better and all that sort of stuff. Yes. So that's personality disorders. And then I guess we have the other mental health challenges, like things like depression, which typically come and then go. So you will experience depression and then it can go into remission. It remits, but then sometimes it also we have a lapse and it kind of comes back and a flare up and we've got to deal with that as well. So people living with BPD can also have things like depression, like anxiety. They often co-occur with substance challenges. So drinking or drug use, that's kind of the person trying to cope, you know, with life in a not so helpful way, but a way nonetheless. So yes, it definitely can co-occur and quite often does. And PTSD is another one that it co-occurs with quite often. Yeah, wow. Okay. Which, like a lot of diagnosable mental illnesses, do co-occur with one another, like OCD and anxiety or anxiety and depression and all that sort of stuff. So I appreciate you sharing that. I don't want to go into the 290, 300 plus diagnosable mental illnesses. That's not what this is about. But I'm very grateful for such a deep dive insight into what BPD is, the impacts that it can have on a said person and maybe how they can manage it, how they can seek the support that they need. Now, if someone is listening Mm -hmm. to this podcast, they are ticking boxes in their mind going, okay, yep, that sounds like me. Oh, wow, that might sound like me or someone that they care about and love. What would your advice be to them as a psychologist, having worked in public and now having your own private practice, no matter where they are, what is some of the best advice that you could give them? Yeah. Natasha. I think it depends who it is. So I think if you're a family member, I think just always keep in mind that, you know, it may be that your loved one has these vulnerabilities. They have this emotion and behavioral system that's really hard to navigate. And so try, if you can, to understand that. Ask them, what is that like for you? Tell me more about that. Validate. And then steer them into the direction of a professional. Now, if you're a family member, there's some really good family support systems around. There's the National Education Alliance for BPD. It's the NEA BPD Alliance. Now, there's a branch in America. There's a branch in Australia. They do a brilliant training for carers and loved ones of people with BPD called Family Connections. If you can get into that, if you're a family member or support person of someone living with BPD, brilliant. Also to the Australian BPD Foundation website, brilliant resource for carers to access little videos, little webinars, information about how to best support their loved one. So that's kind of if you're family carers. If you're somebody who thinks, oh gosh, maybe I have some of this going on, what I would probably encourage you to do is reach out. I think sometimes we feel this sense that we have to do it alone and, you know, Sometimes it can be hard to grapple with maybe we need some help and will that help actually be helpful? But if you look for somebody who says on their website that they are kind of trained in DBT, that they offer DBT, if you can see anything on the website that mentions things about being trauma-informed and person-centred, that would probably be a good combination of therapist, psychologist skills 
to then work well with the person presenting with some of these these difficulties. You know, not every psychologist is an expert in everything. And just like people, so many times I hear people say, I went to a psychologist, I didn't gel. Yeah, that's right. Because just like humans won't be friends with it, all humans won't be friends with each other. Not all psychologists are going to feel comfortable with you. And sometimes it is about giving yourself the chance after a few sessions. If you don't gel with the person, maybe it, it is like, okay, well, maybe this is just not my person. It's not a person that's going to work for me. Let's try and see somebody else. But if you do look for people who, yeah, DBT trained, offer DBT, even offer things like schema therapy and mentalization-based therapy, they're the other evidence-based approaches to working with people with BPD, looking for those sorts of green flags might help the person to get the support that they yeah, need. And it's exactly right. Like, And everyone's very different and everyone's on a different journey as to where they are as well in life with their challenges or their difficulties. But I always say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always better being proactive as opposed to being reactive. And yeah, you know, and, 100%. And, and if you are someone that knows someone that might be struggling, like you mentioned, it's about creating that safe space, listening, asking, how does it feel? What are you experiencing? I want to learn more about it for you. Like these are yes. all things that can make yeah. someone feel more safe, more comfy, more validated, and stuff like that. So I, I love that approach. I love the trauma informed, person centered approach. And I think that's a wonderful approach to first seeking help. I think it's a human. It's a human approach, Sam, and I think at the end of the day, if you treat people with mental health challenges like people, like humans, you will be very surprised at how successful you'll be just in having a conversation without being a psychologist, without being a psychiatrist, just human to human, you know? That's all we really need to do to make yeah, a change. I love that, and absolutely I agree. I think it is, and it's very simple to say, and I understand that as well. And it's easy to say sometimes it's harder to do, but yeah, it is a very much a personal approach. And, you know, we appreciate the work that you do for the people that are struggling and the people that need support that reach out and get it through you. How can people track you down? Yeah. So follow your journey or if they're based on the Gold Coast or in Queensland or in Australia, how can they support your journey and maybe reach out for support? Yeah. So my website is lifeworthlivingpsychology.com.au. I'm on Instagram. Life Worth Living Psychology underscore and Facebook Life Worth Living Psychology as well. So my website will have details to get in touch should you want to talk about things like sessions or if you're a, a service or a person that's wanting supervision or training, they can touch base with me through that avenue as well. And then if you just want some tips and tricks and some mental health inspo, then Instagram is probably the best place. Yeah. And I'll put all these in the show notes, everyone, so that you can click and go directly there. Tash, it's a wonderful time spent with you here on a Tuesday afternoon in America. Thanks, I appreciate everything that you're doing. I'm sure we'll cross paths in the not so long distant future. I know you're getting married next year and whatnot. So some really exciting things to come. But yeah, hopefully maybe we can pick up a round two on the podcast. Sounds great, Sam. Thank you for having me. And I'd love to come back and join you again. Big love, Tash. Thank you for your work. You have a great day now. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please subscribe to the show and help us climb the charts so that we can attract new listeners and change more lives. If you found something very useful in this episode, please share and spread the love to as many people as you can. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation can save a life. 
If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, we're going to the top. And remember, it ain't weak to speak. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.